highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, it is not enough to try the patience of men. Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give, and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid to waste. And the second reading is from Matthew 1, uh, verses 18 to 25. The birth of Jesus Christ. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When, Jesus, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. How are we? Well, that's good. I don't know what Advent and Christmas means for you, I don't know what it invokes. Is it a happy time? Is it a curious time? Is it an exciting time? Or is it a frustrating time? Or maybe something else? For me, it's been a ponderous time. I found myself reflecting quite a bit the last few weeks. And I kind of want to share some of those rambling thoughts just as a kind of an entry point into where I'm going to take the talk this morning. The first one is Christmas cards. I don't know if you do them if you do lots of them, or if you do just a few of them. But for me, it's been a bit of a kind of a troublesome kind of theme. You know, I grew up in a house, um, or a childhood kind of um, upbringing, where Christmas cards were a major thing. 
I didn't really know what Advent was, but I knew that around Advent time, a production line of Christmas cards would start. You see, my dad was an evangelist, and the Christmas card was the key opportunity to reach the masses. And out of our house, we must have produced or sent out somewhere near to about 600, 700 cards for the best part of 25 years. You know, and it still goes on today. When I go around to my parents' house, they are stacked high. And the picture, the narrative was the key thing. You know, Dad would almost probably be praying, I guess, for weeks in advance. And then he'd go to the Christmas store and he would pick, sorry, the Christian store, and he would pick the card that for him spoke best of Jesus, spoke best of Christmas. There was never a wasted opportunity for Dad. And out of that, actually, I've seen people come to faith. So it's probably not a surprise that when I sit down to write a Christmas card, there's a sense of almost a burden that I've got to get the right card. You know, I'm, I'm not one particularly um, for a Father Christmas. My kids produced some lovely Christmas cards this year, and that, that was part of the, part of the options. And uh, I'm not like my dad. I only send out a few. But I do recognize the value of who I send them to. So I'm quite strategic. I literally choose those that I know who do not know Jesus. And I sit there and I look and I think, do I choose the nativity? Do I choose the three wise men? A star? Shepherds? What message do I want to give? That's reflection one. My second reflection, and these tend to carry five or six weeks, again took place in the hairdressers. And I think there's a theme coming. It was a new hairdresser. Every time I have the benefit of a new hairdresser. And this poor chap, I, uh, I just asked him, are you looking forward to Christmas? The haircut probably took about 25 minutes. And for those 25 minutes, this poor guy just shared actually that Christmas is a really rubbish time. It's a time actually where he just dreads. You know, he can hardly face Christmas. So what he does is he escapes to a pond and he fishes, and he fishes, and he doesn't return because he doesn't really have a kind of a family home to return to. And as he talked, there was, there was no mention of Jesus, no mention of the Christmas scene. It was just pain and pain and pain. And actually, all I did was listen and not get depressed, but I felt really quite, quite sorry and quite down as I left the hairdressers. And then my third reflection and actually, funny enough, as I was, I was driving this morning, I was listening to uh, Radio Free, and it was, it was basically saying that we all have a Christmas soundtrack, a Christmas soundtrack, that actually there's songs or there's, there's narrative that helps us kind of get into the, the story or the time of Christmas. Now, for me, it's probably been growing up in a, in a church, and it's been carols. But maybe a bit like your David, you know, carols have actually been a bit of a peculiar and strange kind of, I don't know, thing to grow up with. You know, we sing of glory and angels and shepherds and hosannas. You know, what my kind of doctrine teacher would say is Christianese. It's weird and wonderful language. It's a slightly fairy tale-like story. It's almost Harry Potter-esque. It's almost magical. And as I kind of spent the last few weeks in our sort of evening carol services, particularly as a kind of a student pastor who just is observing lots of newcomers in the services, I couldn't help but wonder 
What are they making of the words they're singing? Are they even aware of what they're singing? Are we aware of what we're singing? We've had some, some interesting ones this morning. You know, the tune sounds good. The tune sounds comforting. Church can be a warm and cozy place when the candles are burning and the decorations are out. But we sing some pretty dramatic, some pretty incredible, some pretty Christianese type words. What does it mean for us? And what does it mean for those who have yet to find Jesus Christ? So with those thoughts in mind, I want to enter enter the story today. And actually what I want to do is focus mainly on Matthew. And if you have a Bible, I'd love you to to open it because we're going to expand the story somewhat. We're going to base ourselves in Matthew 1. And what Matthew does is he shares two perspectives. He shares his own rather strategic perspective of the start of the Christmas story. Matthew, who has the hindsight of seeing the risen Lord Jesus, is aware of the need to share the story some 30 years after Christ dies. He's aware that there's some credibility issues. He's aware that he needs to somehow speak about a risen Lord, about God's Son, about a baby boy Jesus, about angels, about rather crazy things. So Matthew has a very deliberate, a very purposeful approach. It's interesting to note that actually only two of the gospel writers decided to use the nativity story. There's Matthew and there's Luke. And they each take a different, very strategic approach in how they tell the story. So I want us to bear that in mind as we are the new heralds of the gospel, as we are you know, the living witnesses to Jesus. You know, I want us to ask ourselves the question, how do we share the story? And then what we're going to do is we're going to tune in to Joseph's perspective. Matthew shares, if you like, his vantage point. Whereas Luke talks from Mary's viewpoint, we get Joseph's slightly more cynical and sober account in this gospel. So we're going to think about both. And I want you to think about, are you like Matthew? Do you have it all there? Have you got this language nailed? Do you know the story? How do you share that story? Or are you more like Joseph, which is probably where I've been most of my life, finding myself caught up in this rather unusual story and just trying to work out what is it all about? How do I make sense of it? And then how do I help others to make sense of it. So that's our starting point. So what does Matthew do? Well, he starts with an immediate proclamation. This is Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He holds, he holds, holds back nothing. He's straight there. He has intent. He wants to evangelize a Jewish nation. He wants the early believers to be in no doubt as to who this is. Jesus the Messiah. He is the chosen one. He is the one you've been waiting for. He is the son of David. Make no mistake, this boy child, he has come from the royal line. As he speaks to the Jews, he's saying, you know, you've been without a king from the real ancestry, from without, 
without this king from the royal line for over 600 years. But the wait is over. Here is the new king. He comes from the line of David. What he's trying to do here is position Jesus right in the center of the promises. The promises of all that, you know, that David is going to be the, have the lordship of eternity. Matthew is saying that here is Jesus. Here is this boy child. He's going to live out the promise to be king for all of life, for all of eternity. And what Matthew does is he's actually topping and tailing his gospel. Because of the last words of the gospel, we have the great commandment. And we get this idea that actually Jesus says, surely I'll be with you until the end of the age. You know, here is this child that has come in to be the new king. And then he says he's going to be the son of Abraham. And again, he's just trying to invoke the memories. You know, for 400 years, there's been silence. You know, there's been no prophetic voice. The Jews, the Israelites, they've felt abandoned. They've been persecuted. They find themselves under Roman occupation, a bit bewildered. Has God forgotten them? What has happened to the promises? You know, they remember the words. You know, out of the stump of Jesse, a root will come up. And the spirit of the Lord will be upon him. Matthew is saying, here he is. Out of the stump of Jesse, that's David's father. A new root will spring up. Here he is, he's Jesus. Remember the promise that was spoken to Abraham about land, about the promised land. That his family would be a blessing to all nations. Here is Jesus, he's going to be that blessing. Out of him, God is going to bring good. In chapter 2, Matthew gives an interesting little parallel to the Exodus story. You see, the Israelites, they were expecting this big kind of Moses figure to come and rescue them in dramatic fashion. They'd gone silent, they'd gone, they'd gone deaf, the prophetic voice around the suffering servant. No, they wanted a new Moses. They were kind of hand-selecting the scripture they wanted to listen to. And Matthew, in, uh, in chapter 2, gives his parallel of where Herod, like Pharaoh, decides to kind of wipe out the young boys. And so Joseph and Mary have to flee to Egypt. And then God says, you know, he takes his son back out of Egypt. So we have this mini little second Exodus story. And Matthew's quite deliberate here. He's just trying to invoke the memories but actually he's trying to point to something different. So what does Matthew do next? Well, he lists out a genealogy, 26 names spanning 2,000 years, because he's trying to position Jesus right in the center of the ancestry, right in the center of the promises. He's saying, Jesus is one of you. He is the one you've been missing. He is the one that you've been looking for. But this new king is different. And so Matthew does something peculiar. He kind of identifies four women in his genealogy. If you look at Luke's gospel, the only other to give a genealogy, he doesn't mention a woman. Why? Because in those days, women didn't have the same significance as men. It was not the done thing. 
And as I've said, actually, Matthew, again, has another contrast with Luke. You know, he starts his genealogy from the point of Abraham, from the point of the promises. Luke goes right the way back to Adam. But Matthew is specific. This is about the promises being fulfilled. And so what are these four women that he lists? Well, the first one is Tamar. I think it's verse 3. If you remember the story, Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law. And she has the misfortune to be married uh, to one of his sons who dies. And so then the thing to do was the brother would then marry the wife so that she could have a child. And that happens, but he dies again. So basically Tamar is without child. And Judah doesn't want to really want to provide a solution. And so she ends up tricking Judah by pretending to be a prostitute. And Judah sleeps with her and they have a child. And this story is part of that genealogy. This Gentile lady, this kind of deceitful relationship is part of the ancestry of Jesus. And then we have Rahab, the prostitute who helps kind of keep the, um, the spies alive in Jericho. She's then saved and she's brought into the Israelite family and she marries. And she too, a Gentile, finds herself a part of this family line. And then we have Ruth. Ruth, whose um, his widow, her husband, dies so does her mother-in-laws, that's Naomi. And so Ruth decides to be obedient to Naomi and she follows her back to her homeland. And there Ruth meets Boaz and she's grafted in, a Moabite lady grafted in to this Israelite family. And then we have the fourth woman who, who Matthew can't even name. Such were her indiscretions. The wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. You know, the one who David kind of lusts over and takes in. And they have this the first child is illegitimate and dies. And then Solomon comes out of that relationship. What is Matthew doing here? Well, he's certainly agitating the Jewish listener. He's got them hooked because he's spoken into their family line. And now he's presenting a twist. And they're trying to wrestle with what is he saying. Well, I think he's doing a few things. He's basically saying that Jesus has come for everyone. Actually, there's significance in the women. He's come for men and women. And controversially, he's come for Jew and Gentile. There's a parallel here to the first speech after Jesus died, when Peter addresses the crowd post-Pentecost. And he says that actually Jesus has come to set all free. He's come for everyone. You know, Paul expands this when he's talking to the Galatians. You know, he says that Jesus is here. You know, it doesn't matter if you're male or female, slave or free. You know, he has come for everyone. There is neither male nor female in Jesus Christ. It's a completely new take on it. You see what he's done? He's sort of subtly just kind of sown that seed within a message, within a kind of communication method that makes sense to his listener. And if you look closely to the genealogy, there's also you know, there's, there's heroes, there's saints, there's sinners, there's evil kings. Out of this weird cocktail of a family, out of this kind of EastEnders-style story, God plants his son, he plants a new thing. A promise that is for everyone. 
And then Matthew goes into the wider story. You know, the story of angels, the story of Jesus. There's no kind of, there's no introduction, there's no apology for the weird and the wonderful. Now what, what Matthew is saying that is, you know, this is God's son. We should expect the wonderful. We should expect the amazing. There's no apology for it. It's just a given. That's what comes when you believe in a God like our God. This is not fantasy. This is fulfillment of Scripture. The clues have been there. And now Jesus is the living proof. Expect the unexpected. But if that's Matthew's take, what about Joseph? When our passage that was read, we, we hear the story. We hear how Joseph saw it. Joseph was betrothed to be, mar- to be married to, to Mary. Probably, you know, planning the day, quite excited of all that is to come. And then suddenly he hears this dreadful news. The one who's betrothed to him is with child. And we do not know how he found out. Maybe it was obvious. Maybe he saw if you like, the physical sign of the, the pregnant woman. Maybe you heard the whispers of the townsfolk. Maybe not. Maybe word got to him. Maybe, maybe Mary spoke to him. Maybe she didn't. Maybe she sent a messenger. Joseph, I'm pregnant, but don't worry. The child is of the Holy Spirit. We don't know exactly what happened. But what we do know is that Joseph has serious doubts. It says, I think, in, in verse 19, you know, Joseph was of mind to divorce her quietly. You know, in his, in his, mind, there could, in his mind, there could be no other, no other rational kind of explanation other than probably she'd been promiscuous. Devastating news. If he had heard the, the rumor that it was the Holy Spirit, doesn't look like he believed it. He found himself caught up in this painful kind of love story. And so he decides to let her go. He's going to divorce her quietly. It also says in Faithful 19, sorry, in verse 19, that Joseph was faithful to the law and just. What do we learn from that? Well, we learn that he's got a compassionate side. Because if we understand the law, that's Deuteronomy 22, 23, you know, the punishment for a, for a crime like this, for a betrothed woman to, to kind of fall pregnant outside of wedlock, that was death. Joseph does not want to kind of enact that sense of justice. No, he wants to let her go. He wants to kind of minimize the pain and the disruption. He reveals a compassionate side or maybe a fuller sense of what justice really is. But it doesn't mean that he was happy or that he was just in a reflective kind of mood. I think we can get that impression because in, in verse 20 it says, you know, after Joseph had considered this, it implies that he's been very methodical, thinking long and hard about what the right thing to do is. Well, actually, we take that phrase, considered, probably a better kind of um, translation of the Greek word would actually be, he was pretty upset. He was angry, almost to the point he was fuming. You know, Joseph was raging. 
the plans he had has suddenly been shattered. You know, he tries to do the right thing as best he can. But this poor guy is grieving. This poor guy is fuming. He is upset. And it's at this point that God intervenes. You know, parallels here to, to Jacob and his dream when he dreams of the angels and heaven opening and angels ascending and descending. God sends an angel to meet Joseph in his dream. And we get the impression it must be a pretty scary and pretty intense dream because the first words from the angel are, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And the angel basically comforts Joseph. He says it's going to be okay. That Mary is with child because of the Holy Spirit. God intervenes and makes marriage possible. He kind of he turns the situation on its head, a divine encounter. Joseph wakes and suddenly has a change of heart. Suddenly he finds the courage to take Mary as his own, to be the father to this boy Jesus. Likely acting out of obedience to God. Now some would argue that Joseph had the most privileged kind of position. What, what a great opportunity to be the dad to God's son. You know, the, the sacrifice must have been easy. You know, fronting up to be the dad, possibly hearing the ridicule and the shame. Actually, I think it's probably a bit more like one of the disciples. I reckon Joseph was pretty, probably a pretty confused chap. You know, just piece by piece, trying to fit it all together, make sense of this story and who this child was. We don't know too much about Joseph. What we do know is that clearly with Mary, they had the encounter with the shepherds and the, the kind of wise men in the manger. Gifts were given, words were said. And then we have the encounter at the temple with the prophet Simeon and the prophet Anna. And again, you know, words spoken over this child. Here is the Messiah. Here is the chosen one. And then the boy when he's 12 at the temple and his infinite wisdom. Joseph was just a witness to all of this. He was caught up in the story. You know, the angel said, you know, you're going to name him Jesus because he is going to be the one who saves people from their sins. Did Joseph fully understand that when he had heard those words? I don't know. I imagine if it was me, it would have been one of those prophetic words that probably just played over in my mind. And as I journeyed life, or as Joseph journeyed with Jesus, it probably started to make sense. But it was almost too much to fully comprehend in the moment. But it was enough it was enough to follow. And then insight after insight were just to further strengthen Joseph's resolve and his faith. So there we have two different perspectives. In, our, in Isaiah, the passage read earlier, we had that, that saying, didn't we? That God would send a sign that from a virgin a son would be born and he'd be called Emmanuel, God with us. And Matthew clearly got it. 
Matthew understood this was something new, that this boy was no ordinary child. This was God's son, fully divine. Did Joseph get it? I reckon he warmed up to it. I reckon as he journeyed with Jesus, he would have soon realized this is no ordinary child. It must be amazing to have a child who always did right. But uh, certainly as a parent, has three children who always do otherwise. But anyway, it's a peculiar story. So what about us? What about us? Are you Matthew? Do you have the Christmas story kind of fully, fully grasped? Do you understand just the magnitude that God's son became flesh? Do you reflect on the wonder that God would send his angels into the story? That God's handprint is all over the Christmas story, all over this world that we live. Is it more than just something that warms our hearts as we sip mulled wine and eat mince pies and celebrate? I've done a bit of that this week. Is it more than Michael Bublé's Christmas album? Or do we find ourselves like Joseph? Are we caught up in the story just trying to piece it all together? That's okay. We just have to kind of take step by step. But what Matthew was doing as he was saying, this is Jesus, the one who has come, the one who will be here everlasting, the one who is here for everyone, is he's also pointing to our role in the story. He's saying that we are called to make disciples of all nations. This is the intro and the end smashed together. So my reflection has been, a bit like Matthew, how am I going to make this story relevant? As I gather people around the Christmas table, how am I going to share the nativity story? How do I want my children to embody it? How am I going to share it with my school friends? You don't particularly warm to the story. What's the way in? What's the anchor point? What are they missing? Well, I know my hairdresser was missing. He was missing love. He was missing peace. He was missing mercy. He's missing three of the things we sing about in our carols. There's a need, isn't there? There's a need for a new story. There's a need for a new twist. There's a need for hope. See, if I finish with my reflection on the Christmas card, I think I've got it sussed. I would definitely choose the nativity story. Ten out of ten. But it's got to be a nativity story that is that has it all. It's got to be all singing, all dancing. I want the star above the manger. I want Mary. I want Joseph. I want the boy Jesus. I want the shepherds looking rather kind of tatty and just very ordinary. I want the magi. I want these kind of worldly figures, probably from different countries. Remember Andy Wheeler and his depiction of that sort of scene. It's a story that, that speaks of relevance to everyone. You know, the star is a reminder to me, the sender, to the person, the receiver, that actually God is in this world. It's not just about the people. 
God is active. And actually, my entry point in most discussions when I talk about Jesus is actually, just look outside. Look at the world. Can you really say to me, there cannot be a God? Can you really imagine a world without God? And from there, tends to be my way in. If they want a bit of scripture, I'll give them Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Why can we not expect the unexpected? If God can send his son into this world, he can send angels. Hence, we can sing about glory and sing hosannas. It's just what you do when you have an amazing, incredible God. It is not weird. Why do we love the story of Harry Potter? Why do we love Narnia? Because it speaks to the magical. So does the nativity. I think we've just gone silent on it. Actually, this is an incredible story and we need to do it justice. We need to be brave enough to talk about it. It's not a cozy story about a baby boy. It's an amazing, incredible story. And we are the gatekeepers to that story. You know, I want it to tell of this boy born into poverty. It's a statement of God's solidarity with his people. Yeah, it's why those in Latin America, those in China, those who are suffering love it so much because it speaks of a God who is willing to come to the vulnerable. It's not the story of a God who crushes the oppressor there and then, but he will one day. No, it's a God who brings hope, mercy, grace and love into the pain, into the suffering, into the poverty, into the mess. It's why the Christian faith spreads like wildfire in the impoverished parts of the world, because it has real meaning, it has real grit. Jesus was willing to roll up his sleeves, he was willing to get dirty. He's also willing to come to a place like Guildford for you and I, into our struggles. He's willing to come for my hairdresser down the road. He's willing to come to our family and friends who don't yet know him. <clears throat> 